My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, I'm Code Cubit, founding partner of Mistral Venture Partners, and I'm excited to host a series on building an enduring investment firm. Let's hear from my guest today. Let's get started. And uh, I, you know, obviously been looking forward to chatting with you. I always enjoy it. As you know, the, the goal here is to kind of explore what it takes to build an enduring firm. Like most podcasts, if you think about it, most conversations revolve around getting started and continuing and hiring and firing and building companies and all of the grind that we do every day. And so my, my thought was, and, and you and I are in a similar position where you know, we're multiple funds in and we're starting to think about, okay, hey, this is really flying. Where where do we go from here? How do we make this exceptional and transcend, you know, the original team who founded it? Because this is very much a, you know, people business and the, and the founders tend to have the relationships and, and, and keep going. And so I've been talking to other senior folks like you to get their advice. And I think you're particularly interesting not only because you're you founded a firm and, and you guys are off to the races and, and doing well, but you've been a mentor to and a founder of and a partner of multiple firms and have seen literally hundreds of firms get started and become successful and some not. And so there's I think there's a ton of lessons learned there. And so I'm really looking forward to picking your brain on it. Before we go there, maybe it's it's worthwhile having a bit of context. You started out your professional life running a publishing company that you founded. And so I'd love to hear about the transition from, you know, being a founder and entrepreneur in the publishing industry to becoming one of the top VCs. You know, it's interesting because it, it was educational publishing, but now in 1989, but now I was a, I was a CEO of an ed tech company. You know, okay. it's like a, I was a decision science, you know, major in my master's. Now I'm a, now I'm a, a data scientist, right? So things, things evolve, but I, no, I started a I started a company in Japan pretty accidentally in educational publishing and education, primarily around discovering some friends in the corporate world who needed some help on their their MBA applications. And it was the, the interesting thing was they had gotten into a little bit of a pickle because Back in the day in Japan, there were a lot of services writing essays for Japanese applicants, and these guys had, you know, caused some flags to be thrown. And these very powerful MBA programs were coming out to interview them. And so, it's basically I had some experience in admissions, weirdly as an undergrad, not much, but I gave them some common sense advice about, you know, owning the mistake and going in there really prepared, and that led to uh, their success. And then a big booming business that I sold to the Princeton Review. And I found the thing I really liked about it, I, I loved I loved the product building. I loved the selling process. 
But I also did like the idea that we turned a bad industry inside out into an industry that was far more positive around training people and letting them, you know, own their journey versus handing the journey off to a stranger. It just was so completely baffled me that 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 happened. It was a pretty young guy. I was a 24 year old engineer. And then I, I, I started another company more intentionally that by all, all metrics would be considered a massive failure. I mean, all the money was lost. We hated each other. It was a disaster. And, and that really confused me because I had this, you know, I had this accidental success and this intentional failure. And so that led me on this journey of, you know, what is the DNA of a startup, which is the research I did as a graduate student. It was actually how I applied to both graduate school as well as the Kauffman Fellows Program when that came around. Like, I'm on this journey. And I had seen some statistical data in the research we did in my graduate work, but it, it wasn't, it was correlation. It wasn't causation. You know, it was like, okay, if, if companies had these certain characteristics, like we were doing a study around an incubator, if they spent this long, then they had a higher, higher level of success, but we didn't know what that actually meant. And so I wanted to go deeper into what's the, what's more of the causation around success. So that was what led me into the fellows program. And I actually applied with no intention of being a venture capitalist. I was hmm. wanted to, wanted to learn how venture capitalists filtered and understood the DNA of successful startups and then become a better operator, like actually have an intentional success, you know, so I would try to be two in one, you know, after my third one, but with more intention. So that was the thinking. So we can skip right to the end here. And if you could lay out the, the criteria for success, that would just be great. We, we could all take that and go well, home. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I mean, it's it's now pretty common sense, and I think we figured this out on the journey to Kaufman. But it's you know, at the end of the day, business models are are tweakable and fungible, and they're critically important if you don't have a compelling business model and unit economics. But but culture isn't tweakable and pivotable, right? You you start out with a DNA of deeply aligned culture and all the characteristics of of leadership and, and team dynamics. And culture wins, you know, and I think that's now common sense, but I don't think it was, I don't think anybody was really valuing culture. And we know when we brought that in to Kaufman in 2006, we were laughed at by the industry, you know, there's a bunch of kumbaya, you know, yoga gurus, like this is, you know, this is, this is like, we, we chew nails for breakfast. What's this culture stuff? Now everybody's doing it, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, California strikes again. I, I think about that in sort of the 80s and 90s. You know, you came out of this mechanistic era of, you know, Ford and GM and, and factories where the formula was a process and you as a person were just a robot. And the faster you worked, the harder you worked, you know, determined success. And then all of a sudden creativity and flexibility and camaraderie and culture mattered. But those things are hard to measure. And so probably this speaks a little bit to whether it's fund dynamics or firm dynamics or, or even just startup dynamics. There's no right formula for success, but the underpinnings sound like they're the same, right? It comes down to team and culture. I'm curious to, you know, early on in Kaufman, Kaufman shifted quite a bit. And I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on, on culture as it relates to fund building and firm building. Like, you know, is it is it critically as important, especially when you don't have a command and control structure in a firm that you would in a company? It's a great question. I, I, I think it is as important. And I'm, I'm not sure that the structures are necessarily all that different. And what I mean by that, maybe 30 years ago they were, but I think they're evolving 
to look more similar in terms of startup operations. You have a lot more flattening and empowerment. And I think for venture firms to succeed in the, the competitive dynamic we're in today, you have to be more operational and you have to have clearer deliverables where, you know, back and literally the advice I got from my mentor, and it was tongue in cheek, but he still said it. And, I, and it wasn't entirely uh, joking is you want some mentoring. You know, this is three days after, you know, three, after three days of really good work at Kaufman. And you could see these old legends kind of, you know, squirreling around in their seats because they're kind of uncomfortable <laughs> with it. And we walked back my first day in the office, he walks in, he greets me, he goes, he goes, all right, you want some mentoring? There's your, there's your desk. There's your phone. Go do some good deals. I'll talk to you in six months. <laughs> and I kind of laugh, but I don't, you know, it turns out that's how the business was done back then. It was like, and I, I've heard another, you know, another, not in our firm, but in other firms say, look, you can stand on your head for a year in the corner. Like, we don't care if you do good deals. And so you're just sort of left to swim. So I think that's the way it used to be. And now you just can't do that. You have to treat your firm like an, like an operating company. So I think they look more similar. The difference, I think the largest difference is recognizing feedback loops, you know, that, that op, you know, operators can know today, this week, this month, hey, I'm getting feedback that I'm doing a decent job. This feature worked in my software. I sold this much product, whatever it may be. And we know in venture that even a year doesn't really tell you much. You're probably... It's probably a four to five year feedback loop where you kind of get a feeling that you're doing the right thing. More mm -hmm. things are getting marked up than are going out of business, but you're, you know, it's a, it's, it is a, it's a 10 to 12 year feedback loop. So you just have to adjust your operations accordingly. It takes a lot more faith in the people. And probably because of that, it might put more emphasis on culture than even in an operating company. You bring, you bring up a good point, though, which is sort of the change or migration or maturation of, of our industry where it used to be rock star driven, right? A whole bunch of type A's loosely collected. If you succeeded and brought in the best deals and made money, you get to stay. Otherwise, you're gone. Kind of a you know 80s style Gordon Gecko culture. And that's shifted. So that's that's one thing you've observed, I'm guessing here. For sure. I mean, it, it's a lot of it is just the, the dissolution of the information monopoly. We saw it happen in IT, you know, in the 60s, if IBM walked into your hospital and said, buy this much stuff for this price, you just nodded your head and you bought it. And as the, you know, as that industry matured and other voices became more powerful, the, the network decentralized power shifted to the buyer, to the CIO you could see it happen in medicine where the shift went from the surgeon God to now we're, we're all told to own our own healthcare. And, and you can see it in sports where it used to be the coach. Now it's the players. So these are, these are all things I think where that awareness information creates, uh, creates a more level playing field for us. It's, you know, we know with the power law distribution of, an, of investing that there's a very small percentage of entrepreneurs that matter. And as they see that curve and they go, hey, maybe I'm one of those people. Well, that gives them a lot of negotiating power. And, and that requires us to come up with product and service ideas, to position ourselves, 
to build track records, not of just putting numbers on the board, but, you know, people will like we do this in our we emphasize testimonials from entrepreneurs more than anything on our website, because what else matters? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, it started out with asymmetry of information being the differentiation, right? So if you were in the know or in the loop and you knew the buyers, you could hold that to your chest. I think of it like the real estate industry where it was controlled by real estate agents and the MLS for a long time. And then all of a sudden the internet creates transparency and then the power shifts back and forth. And that's certainly happened in our business too. Absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely what's happening. You started out you know, your professional career as a teacher, you're still a teacher, you're still a mentor, a guide with lots of lessons, and and you're big on sharing. How has that shifted for, you know, the team that you're bringing up inside your firm? Are you are you deliberate in thinking about transition and succession? Is that part of what you do every day? Yeah, really deliberate. And it was colored by, you know, my my journey at One Liberty, which was succeeded from the founders, Dan Holland and Jim Morgan to Ed Kenya, and eventually New Barathane and built, event, you know, today, one of the most important and successful life sciences firms in the world called Flagship Pioneering. And I got to watch that firsthand and that colored me a lot. And I was also part of firms that, that were successful, but didn't handle the succession very well at all. And so that was really useful to see both. You know, I never thought about it, but it's actually the same <laughs> parallel as, as my startup career. Like I got to see one work and one not work. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And and while I was going through those ups and downs adventure, I was, I'd gone through the fellows program. I was very active with the foundation. I was one of the original board members when we spun out. So I was, I was, I really loved the program because I was considered myself a teacher. I might've been more interested in the program than most of the first handful of classes. So yeah, I, I saw that and that was brought up a lot is the two metrics of a great venture capitalist are, can you create your own firm that serves entrepreneurs in a unique and important way? And can you manage succession? And if you can do both of those, that's quite an accomplishment and not that many people have done it. I mean, there's a handful of firms that have really succeeded in that way. You know, Excel, Sequoia, not very yeah. many. Yeah, no, there is just a few. So maybe, maybe let's take it a slightly different direction. Causes of failure, right? I've seen lots of firms come and go. And, and I like, I resonate with what you just said around, you know, it's one thing to be successful economically and have a fund or two or three that makes money. That's one thing. But then having the firm transcend, you know, that person or that team is is sort of the home run, right? One's a double or a triple and the rest, you know, is, is a grand slam if you can pull it off. So I'm sure you've seen lots of firms come and go. You and I both know of a couple that, well, anyway, that, that we kind of have shared connections with that didn't work out. I'm curious what lessons or what examples you would have to describe the firm that doesn't work out and why? Well, let me let me try to answer it by using the answer to a question that one of our young associates asked me five years ago, who's now being made an MD. And he said, what's my career path? What's my development path? And, you know, my pithy answer was, I only have two things I need to do. One is to give you space and support to make yourself very expensive in the venture capital marketplace. And that's pretty straightforward. You know, do you build a great network? Do you build a brand? Can you source great deals? Do entrepreneurs love you on a board? All of those things. 
And the second thing is to be smart enough to pay you once you become expensive. And so that, you know, at least in this case, that's happened. You know, I think we're smart enough to recognize proactively the value of this particular member of our team. It was very intentional to develop him. And he was very intentional about wanting to get here. And I think the breakdown, you could start with those two questions that I remember I sat in an LP meeting with a fund, a very successful fund with a close friend. And the LP, very sophisticated, said, hey, you have had 48 associates in the history of your firm. And we can only find one who's made it to MD. And he said, yes. Now, there are a lot of firms that have been dominated by two-headed monsters, and they're fine with people coming in and getting five years of experience and going out and getting good jobs in venture. Everybody's happy with that, but those firms tend not to go forward because you're not, you're not in that development mode, right? And the other one is you have great talent, but people don't want to let go of the reins. The senior guys don't want to let go of the reins, and you can either have a you know, sort of a storming the castle takeover by the young people. But oftentimes, two or three young stars will raise their hand to the LPs and say, hey, we're heading out to do something innovative, and they can raise money very quickly. And those firms fade off into history. They don't die very quickly, but they don't last. They, don't, they won't be important 20 years from now. And there are a lot of those firms. That's a great answer. So it sounds like you've got to grow them from inside to be better than you, you have to pay them accordingly, offer the opportunities, nurture them, et cetera, and not be a, a, a revolving door. There are a lot of firms that simply don't do associates or principals. They just do analysts, they grind them, then they send them back to business school and off they go, which is fine for a career path, but doesn't do a lot for succession because you do age out at some point. Yeah, I think that's right. And if you, you know, if you look at the firms that, that are either multi-generational in their succession, the people who lead those firms now were brought in, you know, pretty junior, you know, whether it's Andrew Bracci at Excel, you know, multi-generations at Sequoia, you know, Jason Green and I in my class, you know, he's almost a decade ahead of us in building, building emergence. And we've shared thoughts on this and I've, I've really modeled a lot of what we do and what they, what they've done, which I think is very special. You know, they've been very thoughtful about bringing people in at a junior level, putting them through very, rigorous training and they've proven that you can you can grow real talent i mean santi subatovsky's you know a monster success having started from scratch with you know an entrepreneur's background so yeah i think it's you've got to build them from within and i don't think you can bring senior people in regularly sideways i think that there's just too much that could go wrong with egos and culture you just have to you have to unteach so many things to bring people into the the culture that I, I, I can't really think of an example of, of that being a very effective succession plan. Yeah. Well, I think about Rebecca at USB, who we just spoke to last week, actually might be, might be the exception to that rule. Rebecca's not, I mean, he's still like Peter Fenton was brought into benchmark. He wasn't, he wasn't a neophyte, but he was young and Rebecca's not, I Rebecca, Rebecca's still, you know, she's, she's not a 20 year veteran of venture. Um, right. That, that's, you know, five years of venture is, is great, but you probably, you know, there, you still can adapt a lot to a new place. Yeah, that's a good point. You don't have to unlearn so many things and bad habits. What about the notion of being super deliberate about creating a multi-generational firm versus, you know, the 
I just need a fund. <laughs> you know, I just need a paycheck. And, and now that I've got one fund, I just want the second. How much time do you put into fund nine when you're on fund three? Yeah, it's a good question. The, one of the guys who coaches us, we were talking about fund two, and he started the conversation by saying, let's talk about fund five. And what was interesting was he was a guy who coaches a lot of firms that have great succession. So I think you have to think about that. Now, the further you go into the future, the more you write in pencil and the lighter you write, obviously. You know, so you're sketching fund nine at fund three in very broad strokes, but it doesn't hurt you to, you know, to think about that over dinner with your partners. If you're at fund two, you should be concretely planning for fund three. You should be setting yourself up for, you know, if you think about the, we think about venture and internally as precision manufacturing. So we're always looking at, we want to increase yield and throughput at, at the sacrifice of neither, right? We want to get bigger and we want to get better. And so I think you have to go into an early fund thinking about your next fund. So fund one for us was a hundred million. We're deliberate. We said, we want to learn how to be successful with a hundred million dollar fund. We've been pretty successful. Fund two went to 200. We thought that was a good graduation. And, and we were intentional about that going back before we created fund one. That was been very successful, right? And fund three, we're probably going to double again. And that's very intentional. So we're thinking through all of that. What happens in that process, I think, is that you, you develop, you bring people on. And I think if you're lucky enough to have experienced great leadership, either directly or through friends, you're much more thoughtful about how you bring people on board and who you bring on board and how you set expectations. So I used to joke, it's a joke with the, you know, the fellows and they'd say, you know, is this a partner track position or not? And I'm like, don't worry about that. Don't worry about what GPs say. If they tell you it's not a partner track and you're a rock star, they're going to make it a partner track. And if they tell you it's a partner track and they don't like you, they're going to make it a non-partner track. Like you get in the door, you go. But I think for the GPs, the more aware of that you can be, the better that we may have someone in our midst who is really talented, like they're out, they're proactive, they're building networks. And then pretty soon what we what we did with the two folks that we just made MD is we started to give them more specific directions, challenges. We don't have this system, build this system, test them in areas where it may take them out of their comfort zone. The, the slightly more senior of the two, Hiroki, is starting in class 26 of the fellows program. It's a given that we would support them in the fellows program if they can be accepted, right, as a part of their development. So I, I think that if you have the, if you, if you have, you know, I had the benefit of, you know, having a lot of smart people who did that, who I'm close friends with, like say, gosh, you can't be too intentional about how you develop your talent. So it sounds like, I mean, clearly forethought and, and strategy and consideration is key. I, I'm curious, when you, as you're building your firm and you're doubling each fund, does that change the strategy that you deploy and the process you have in place? And, and clearly you need more people unless you're, you're, you're writing bigger checks. Like, how do you think about doubling every three or four years in the context of the, the firm? Yeah, the I would I would I would reverse the cause and effect there. I, you know, we sketched that out that we could grow. Our rate of growth was determined more by the market than than anything else. And so, you know, we looked at it and the nature of what we do 
we we looked we saw many opportunities where we had success where we could have written larger checks we saw areas where we could have won deals that we couldn't win because we didn't have the check size still we can be flexible and do smaller checks and learn so we basically it's not more complicated than saying okay if we do for example our fund 3 which would be about 400 million if we look at this and say gosh the way we've been investing we're going to go from about 30 to maybe 80 companies in the portfolio in four years, some of which would be smaller checks and lighter touch, but how are we going to execute our operating strategy, which is we need to support them from the financial side and the financial reporting side and the board, whatever our board roles are. Um, But importantly, how do we develop, how do we support them in business development on the Asia side? And that, you know, that's where we have to look and say, can we make that work from a personnel strategy under the fee structure that we have. That's a big part of your strategy too, right? That's how you're differentiated is you're multinational and you're all about international BD. That's our product. It's a, we, we call it a product and service strategy. And we, we do characterize ourselves as an educational institution because we're, we're bridging, you know, we have two, two parties, two communities that really, really want to work together, but there's some pretty massive obstacles for them to get over to be successful. So we spend most of our time educating. And I think that's the nature of the venture business. It's, it's a, you know, it's learning, curating and passing it along. It's what we do. We may not be entirely aware of it, but that's what we do. Got it. Well, what haven't I asked you, Phil? What advice would you give someone at mid-stage of a fund, cre- of a firm creation, not a fund creation? who's looking to build the next decade, what have we not covered? I think that one of the issues is that the emotion of building and handing off a venture fund is a lot easier than it sounds. You can say 20 years from now, I want these pups to have my firm, but we're not always as aware of our own obsolescence as we might want to be. And, you know, I'm 57 going on 58, and I'm, I'm very open about this with the team that I sign up for a fund now, like I'm signed up for a while. You know, 10-year fund is typically 13, 14 years right. long. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the hook until I'm 70, and, and people need to think about that. And I'm very intentional about wanting to, I'd love to see this brand last beyond me. And so it requires a lot of delicate conversation, but you have the mindset of wanting it to happen. And I think what happens with a lot of firms, like in anything in life, people tell themselves, this is what they want to do. But when push comes to shove, they don't do it. And that's where you see a lot of talent leave. They're like, hey, we're going to bring you guys in and make you you know, peers, or we're going to hand this off to you. And then, gosh, you're raising another fund. And, well, not this fund maybe next fund. And that's where you can see a lot of talent bleed off where people, you know, they've just paid lip service to the idea. So I think you have to, I think there's some, some amazing firms. Sutter Hill is legendary the way I think they've been around since like 1963. They're so thoughtful and how they bring people up and work them out and they keep these legendary guys around for support. I, I really admire what they've done. But you have to have that mindset and you, it's, you have to let go of ego. And this is such an ego driven business that <laughs> it's, it's just fraught with potential, you know, potential issues. Yeah, you, you took the words out of my mouth that it's, it's ego that gets you into the business, right? Because you have to be 
driven, you know, obviously smart, table stakes, et cetera, successful, but it's that drive to win and succeed and, and create something new that gets you into this business in the first place. So how do you know that you're beyond your uh, best before date? Like, how do you know when it's time to start handing the baton? What keeps someone in? Like there are, there are founders who have ridiculous amounts of financial success and all sorts of notoriety, and then they still stick around when they shouldn't. I watched some of these other firms that have kind of the age-based staging out. There's some really interesting things I've learned from friends from India about how men think about the aging process and what to do at various stages of life. So I've thought about it for a long time. And even so, while I, I pay lip service to it, it'll be interesting to see if I can let go. Yeah, I, right. I have large degree in this new fund. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, a lot more parity in this fund. There's a lot of letting go. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about how in fund four, four years from now, how that, how that, because that would be for me the point at which I would hand things off. Um, so I, I need to be very aware of my, you know, my lack of predictability and, and the coaching I need to get to make sure that that happens smoothly. I don't think that's going to be a problem for you. You're very self-aware and, and your ego is, is fully in check. You know, one of the observations well, I had, I remember. Given, given I'm talking to a Canadian guy, that's because that's you've never seen me on the hockey rink. <laughs> we'll get to hockey at the end here because there's, there's a big game tonight. I, one of the things I observed when I was an analyst, I remember the partners listening to me intently and I thought they were paying me lip service almost as a favor, but they were literally listening. And, I, and at the time I thought I was insecure and then now when we have junior people coming and talking to me, I listen intently because they see the market differently. Yes. And I recognize that the technology that they see today and the way businesses run is different than it was 10 or 20 years ago. And so there is room and there is a need for fresh brains and young minds. And when you get older, you get more stuck in your ways and, and things do change and you need to too. You know, it's funny. We were just talking about that today and I, you know, a couple of things I was talking the other day about my early software days in 95, 96. And, the, you know, you start talking about how you funded things and how things got built. And you feel like you're telling stories of rafting up the Missouri with Lewis and Clark <laughs> in 1803. You're like, it feels like such ancient history, given how fast things have changed. And, you know, the other, you know, we were talking today about some of the structures we're looking, we've been talking about this for years, but just how structures are becoming more and more founder-centric in the culture of uh, founder-centricity, which is great, but it, wow, you really have to have young minds around you. And we, we actually, we talk about this in the class I teach at Stanford, and I do this with the, the kids here is, is, yes, you can have a learning plan for me. I'm happy to teach you whatever I know, but I also need a learning plan from you. And I don't want any of this, you know, mastery dynamic. Like I'm, I'm here as a lead student. I've been learning longer than you. So maybe I can, you know, I can drive a lot of the process, but I'm here to learn as much as you are. And, and I, I think you, you, that's another, it's a great point that I, we should emphasize in this is I've seen this from great firms that have succession that the legendary partners are fascinated with the young people in their firm. And they talk about them. They talk about how they ask questions, how they see the world. And I think that's just a, that's just a, a humility that is key indicator of whether 
you have a sustainable model because that humility is going to translate into culture, is going to translate in how you recruit people and how you bring them on board. Um, it's going to translate into your sense of place in the world in a healthy way, you know, that we're, you know, we're, we're stardust, right? No, I, I get it. I agree. That, that's a, that's probably a great way to end it. You know, it starts with ego ends with humility. Uh, but it's, it's peppered with this insatiable thirst for learning the whole way through. That's the journey, man. It's the, you know, what's better than, I tell this to young people all the time, you're going to come in and you're going to meet three or four people every day who are inventing the future in different ways. And you're just going to happen again and again and again. And it just becomes so addictive, you know, to yeah. be in that learning process and to figure out how to support them. Right. And take on that mindset of doctor, coach, parent, psychologist, right. right? All the things that, that if we're good that we do. Right? No question. It's it's a privilege to to have this job and, and an honor and heck of a lot of fun along the way. It really is. It really is. Phil, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom as always with us and everybody that's gonna listen to this podcast. Look, it's an honor to be part of the Code Cubit show. You certainly have the best name in podcasting. So, you know, you're a natural. So I'll take that. That's probably a great place to end it. Good things from you from the Code Show. Thank you, Phil. All right, brother. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. 